want to reiterate what James just said about the picture there that we had before us of the children and the teachers who were being prayed over, surrounded by the elders, but really surrounded by the church. And rest assured, this is not the last time that the children and teachers and you yourselves will be prayed over by the people in this congregation. We will be constant in prayer. This is really where, where the real battle belongs, is in the realm of prayer, as we'll talk about here in a few moments. We do pray to a good Father. That is the foundation of our faith, the goodness of God. A good God creates a good world. And even when things fall apart because of sin, because of the fall, God doesn't abandon the creation. He doesn't abandon His work and throw it away. He does just the opposite. He enters into it through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is very near. God is engaged. And God wants to hear from us, which is why we pray. And a scripture came to mind as I was looking at the scene uh, here with the kids and with the the teenagers and the the teachers. And as we were singing that song, my mind went to the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous words in all of Scripture. And my mind went to when he was talking to his disciples about prayer, when he said, Ask, and it will be given unto you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, And the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And then Jesus goes on to say, Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. God is the giver of good gifts. That is the character of the one to whom we lift up our prayers. And one of the reasons why we lift up prayers to the Father is because that's really where the real battle takes place. And so the battle with our children, the battle for our children, is not with math and science and spelling and English. Those are very important. And we can do things for our children to help them succeed in building up what we call the the resume virtues. We can provide structure for our children. We can remind them to do their homework. We can give them opportunities to grow and to stretch. And we should be doing that. But that's not where the real battle lies. The real battle is in the spiritual realm. And the best thing that we can do for our children this year is to pray for them daily. And if you're not in the habit of praying over your children daily, what a great opportunity to start here at the beginning of the school year to pray for their well-being, to pray for their character development, and to pray for their faith. And as we pray, we remember that we are engaging with the Father who gives good things to those who ask Him. But it's in prayer, it's in this spiritual realm, this invisible realm, where we now turn our attention. This invisible realm that is a bit inaccessible to us, but it wasn't inaccessible to our ancestors, the ancients. 
The ancients were keenly aware of this sphere, this spiritual world. And I think it's a little harder for us. We've been trained in the Enlightenment. We've been trained to grab a hold of only that which we can see and taste and touch and measure. And yet even with all of this training, there's still something in our bones that reaches out for something beyond us. We know something else is out there. We see the fruit of it everywhere. And so to explore this spiritual realm, we need to go back to school. We need to go to the place where the master teacher resides. We need to go to the place where the master teacher unveils this spiritual reality. And our schooling takes place in the Gospels, in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's in the Gospels where we have the story of Jesus, where he gathers around himself a group of disciples, which literally means students and he is teaching his students about this invisible realm and who God is and what the kingdom of God is all about and he does this in a variety of ways he does this through direct teaching like we just heard this morning from the sermon on the mount he does this through object lessons and through miracles and through his interactions with others his disciples his students are watching how he interacts with others and they're learning what the kingdom is all about But perhaps the most interesting way that Jesus unveils this spiritual reality, this realm, is through story. And so we're going to introduce this new series this this year, this fall, called Stories with Intent, The Parables of Jesus. Now this title is taken from an author. He has a very interesting name. His name is Klein Snodgrass. And I'm going to use him as a conversation partner, uh, partly because I want to say his name over and over again, (laughs) but also because he has some good things to say about the parables. And so we're going to be engaging in a lot of what we're going to be talking about at the end of this sermon. We'll be in conversation with him. So this morning will be a bit of an introduction, and hopefully we'll be able to answer a couple of questions. What is a parable? And why did Jesus speak in parables? So we can close the screen and think about that for just a moment. Why does Jesus speak in parables? Well, I think to answer that question, we're going to answer it appropriately with a story. And it's a story that many of us are familiar with. You history buffs out there, literacy buffs, those who have read the Iliad, by Homer and the Trojan War, the war between ancient Greece and ancient Turkey that may or may not have taken place, and some of the details are a little spurious, but one thing we do know is that the story of the Trojan War, and especially the story of the Trojan horse, has really captivated the world for millennia. It's a 10-year war. Helen, the princess Helen, has been kidnapped, and the Greeks tried to retrieve her from the city of Troy, And it's a 10-year stalemate, and very costly, and the Greeks had had enough. And so they sail away, but before they sail off, they construct this wooden horse as a gift to show respect for their opponents, and they leave it on the shore. And when the men of Troy see the Greeks sailing away, they go out to the Trojan horse, this big wooden horse, and wheel it into their impenetrable 
walls. And then they begin to celebrate. But of course, the Greeks didn't really sail away. They came back under the cover of night. And there was a group of elite special forces within the wooden horse. And at just the right time, they snuck out and opened the gates. And the army of the Greeks came in and they captured the city. It's one of the great ruses in the history of storytelling. But it's this story that goes to the heart of what I think is my favorite definition of a parable. If you want to look at the back of your order of worship, you can follow along with some of these definitions. A parable is a story intended to deceive the hearer into truth. A parable deceives the hearer into truth. Well, how does that work? Well, that's the power of story. So if someone is trying to challenge us, and they're trying to change our minds, which is something that's very difficult to do, a lot of times a direct approach, a direct assault is not very successful because we recognize when people are trying to do this. We recognize when someone's trying to change our mind, and so what do we do? We build up walls. We build up our defenses. We begin to think about launching our counterattacks, and even when we know we're wrong, we keep going because, well, no one really likes to change their minds. But then there's the power of story. Story has the capacity to disarm. Story has the capacity to cause us to lower our defenses, especially if it's a very interesting story. And so we're more liable to look at that story, that Trojan horse, and if we're interested, wheel it into the walls of our hearts. And before we know it, our thinking is being challenged without us even knowing it. Before we know it. We do this with our children. So if we have one child that is talking ugly to another, or maybe they're talking ugly to us, there are lots of different ways we could address that. We can shake our finger, do a direct approach, establish consequences, and there are places for that. We could also tell story, and especially if they're little, we tell them the story of the prince or the princess who was being very sassy and they were turned into a donkey or turned into a swine or whatever we can come up with. And that has a special effect, especially on little ones. Well, we see this in Scripture as well. In the Old Testament, King David had been caught up in a web of deceit and adultery and murder. He took Bathsheba for his wife, who was the wife of another, and arranged for the husband to be killed in battle. And really the worst part of that story is how deceived David was. It was self-deception. I mean, he did, of course he knew this was wrong, but he got caught up in it. And the Nathan prophet comes to confront him, but... Nathan doesn't give him a direct approach, at least not at the beginning. What does he do? He says, David, there's a man, a poor man, who owns one little sheep. And this rich man came in who owns all of these other sheep. He's so wealthy. He has all these flocks, and he's entertaining a guest, and he doesn't want to use his own sheep, so he takes the one sheep from the poor man to feed his guest. And do you remember how David reacts? Anger, 
His sense of justice is kindled inside of him, and he says, who is this man? I want to know his name. He must pay. And then Nathan the prophet points to him and says, you're the man, David. You're the man. David was given the space to find himself in a story and then the character transformation, the challenge came out, and he understood quite well what Nathan, what, Dave, what Nathan the prophet was saying to him. Jesus does this as well. We're going to talk about a parable later on in the fall about the Good Samaritan. But that comes in the context of Jesus engaging with a lawyer. And they're having a back and forth about eternal life, and this lawyer is trying to test Jesus. And they get into a conversation about loving neighbor, what it means to love neighbor. And then the lawyer asks, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus doesn't give him a lecture. Jesus doesn't give him a list. Well, a good neighbor does this, this, and this, and doesn't do this, this, and that. How does Jesus respond? Once upon a time... Once there was a man who was on his way, he was on a journey, and he was robbed and beaten and left for dead, and a priest and a Levite passed by. But this no good, dirty Samaritan came, and he helped him and treated his wounds and took him to an inn and paid for his expenses. Okay, lawyer, who was the good neighbor? And, of course, the, the lawyer answers correctly, and Jesus says, Go and do likewise. It's the power of story. Deceived into truth. Well, there are other definitions that are interesting. One I really like is this one. A parable is an imaginary garden with real toads in them. Chew on that for a little bit. But really, technically, a parable is an analogy. It's an expanded comparison, an expanded analogy that's used to convince or persuade. Jesus doesn't tell these stories in a vacuum. He doesn't tell stories just to tell stories. He is seeking to challenge his disciples and these religious leaders. He's challenging their thinking. He's expanding their vision of the kingdom. And ultimately, Jesus seeks to change behavior. And so he gives them these expanded analogies used to convince them, to persuade them. Well, this morning I want to close with some characteristics of the parables in order to prepare our ears to hear these stories this fall. And I want to share briefly 11 characteristics. So I'm giving you a list. I'm not giving you a story. I'm giving you a list. So I beg your forgiveness for that. But I think these characteristics will help us in, in interpreting the parables and help us hear these a little better. So number one, Parables are brief. They're very brief. There's no wasted motion in a parable. Every detail is used to move the story along, and sometimes parables are only a verse or two. Very brief. Number two, parables are marked by simplicity and symmetry. Simplicity and symmetry. So never are more than two persons or groups together in the same scene. Parables are very easy to follow. And there is a balance. There is a symmetry between the two. You think about the parable of the sheep and the goats 
and the judge having those positive affirmations for the sheep, and then there's a mirror of the negative statements for the goats. It's perfectly balanced, and it helps us remember them. Number three, parables of Jesus are focused mostly on humans. There are no talking rabbits or foxes. These are stories of people recognizable in first century Palestine. So there's a lot of parables about farmers and shepherds and servants and masters and kings. Number four, although parables deal with humans, they don't necessarily portray everyday events. These are not historical accounts of certain events. These are not true stories, and yet they are true in a different sense. What they do contain are elements of shock and surprise and hyperbole. They are meant to startle, and some of them are meant to disturb, but they're not based on historical events. Number five, they are engaging The parables of Jesus are interesting. They are crafted that way. They are crafted to elicit a response. And so we are called as listeners to pass judgment on whatever the event Jesus is talking about and then make that leap to spiritual matters. And just as an aside, as a matter of interpretation, one thing to to try to do when we hear these parables is to try to identify the question that the parables are actually addressing. So interpreting parables, you can go a lot of different directions, and people have. But sometimes our interpretations aren't necessarily addressing the question that the parables actually linked to. So in a way, interpreting the parables is a bit like Jeopardy. We have the answers. We have to find the right question. But that was an aside. Sometimes the questions are obvious. Sometimes they're a bit more subtle. Number six, they often contain an element of reversal. So the poor, the downtrodden, the outcast are experienced a change of fortunes, if, if you will, uh, a victory. Think about the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus eating the breadcrumbs from the table of the rich man, and he experiences glory at Abraham's bosom in the age to come. So there's an element of reversal. Think about uh, the saying at the end of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. Number seven. The crucial matter is usually at the end. And so we have another interpretive key to the parables. This functions like the punchline of a joke. The stress of the main point comes at the end, not all the time, but almost all of the time. If we want to know what the parable is about, we go to the very last part of it. Number eight goes beyond the parables, but is especially true of the parables. They are told in a context. The context colors the interpretation. We're going to work through the parable of the lost sheep for two weeks in a row. One of them is from the Gospel of Luke. One of them is from the Gospel of Matthew. The same parable told in two different contexts, addressing two different topics. And we'll see that clearly when we get there. We can't tear these stories 
away from the context. Number nine. The parables are theocentric. Theocentric. Theo meaning God. And that's just a fancy way of saying that God is the chief actor in the play when it comes to these stories. The parables of Jesus are about God, about God's character, about God's kingdom, about God's expectations for us as his people. And so we hear a lot of parables with the figure of father, master, king, judge, theocentric. Number 10, the parables frequently allude to Old Testament scriptures and images. Uh, We have an Old Testament and a New Testament, but one story, the Old Testament looking toward Jesus, the New Testament, the story of Jesus and the church, but it's one big story, and yet Jesus in his parables looks backwards to the Old Testament and draws on a lot of stories and images and reuses and reconstitutes them for what he's trying to communicate to his disciples. And so in this study this fall, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages to go to the roots of these stories. And finally, number 11. These parables often appear in larger collections of parables. They often appear in larger collections of parables. There are very few standalone parables. There's usually a string of parables, which helps us in the interpretation. So to help us understand a parable, it's helpful to look at the parable before it and the parable after. Usually there's a theme or a thread that runs through a series of parables that helps us draw out meaning. Well, that's a lot to chew on on a Sunday morning. But I hope that it's helpful as we move toward the study of these parables. Next week, we're going to dive right in with the parable of the two debtors from the Gospel of Luke. This morning, I wanted to offer an introduction, a teaser, if you will, to whet our appetites for listening and hearing these stories. And really what I want to do is I want to challenge us to something. I want to challenge and pick up on something that James preached on last week in this idea of surrender and thinking about the Trojan horse. My challenge for us as we hear these stories is to lay down our arms, if you will. And that's not easy to do, whether you're hearing these for the first time or you've maybe especially if you've heard these over and over again, we can come in with some preconceived ideas about what these parables are about. I've heard that parable before, I know what it's about, but I want to encourage us to not do that. I want to encourage us to lower our defenses and to wheel in that Trojan horse and to allow God to capture our hearts and speak to us about the kingdom afresh and anew here in 2019, this kingdom that we know is there. We see the fruit of it, this kingdom of the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and dwelling with us today. It is the greatest story ever told. So this morning I want to offer an invitation And it's an invitation to lay down our arms. And maybe this morning we come here with uh, 
quite a few burdens on our shoulders, and we have the opportunity to, to come forward in a public way, if you would like the prayers of the church, or in a more private setting in the chapel following our assembly. We'll have one of our elders there to, to pray with you. Maybe you've built up walls in your relationships. Maybe you've built up a wall in the most important relationship between you and God. The invitation this morning is to surrender, to lower our defenses, and let God do the work on our hearts that only God can do. Maybe this morning you've come to a place of faith and belief, and you're ready to be immersed, to be baptized in the name of Jesus, and we can accommodate that for you this morning. If you've already been immersed and you would like to be a member and join in with what God is doing among us here at Brentwood Oaks, now is the time to come forward as we stand and as we sing.